Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Jackson Prusco will be heard, the Washington Bureau Chief for Global News, on his return from El Paso and a remarkable moment at a Dallas airport. You'll want to hear that. Also from Global News, reporter Joe Scarpelli from Gillum, Manitoba, as the RCMP investigation continues there. Gun violence is a public health issue, says epidemiologist Dr. Gary Slutkin, who's the co-founder of Cure Violence, which is a program which is being used successfully in many countries around the world to stop violence. Mike Smith from the Vancouver province, columnist and CKNW radio host on the Liberal Party, naming its official candidate in the Vancouver Granville riding, which is currently represented by Jody Wilson-Raybould, a former Liberal Attorney General, and from CJOB in Winnipeg, reporter and host Richard Cloutier on the upcoming Manitoba election. Some of what you'll hear on today's podcast. Jackson Prusco, he is the Washington Bureau Chief for Global News and was in uh, El Paso. Jackson, thank you very much for the time. And and before we talk about El Paso, may I begin by asking you about your experience in Dallas? You absolutely can. It was just, it was a a wonderful story. So uh, tell us what happened. Yeah, so we were flying back from El Paso and connecting through the airport in Dallas. And uh, we arrived at the gate and we're waiting for our inbound plane. And suddenly the gate agents from Southwest Airlines show up and they start handing out uh, American flags to all of us at the gate. And uh, the gate agent comes on over the PA system and says, uh, you're about to witness a very special arrival. And he goes on to explain that uh, an American airman who was shot down over Laos in 1967 uh, and was presumed missing in action, that his remains had recently been recovered and identified and were being flown home on our inbound aircraft uh, because he was from the Dallas area originally. But what made the story so special, as the gate agent struggled to explain, because this was incredibly emotional, he said that same soldier, uh, Colonel Roy Knight, departed from this same airport in 1966. And at that time, he waved goodbye to his family, including his five-year-old son, and that was the last time he saw them. And he said, today, the pilot of the plane bringing Colonel Knight home is his son. His son, Brian, is now a pilot for Southwest Airlines. Chilling. It really is an absolutely chilling story. As I saw you develop it on Twitter, I was thinking about the fact that you'd been to El Paso. You had witnessed what had been going on in that city after that uh, mass shooting. And then you find yourself in this incredible circumstance at Dallas Airport. And and it, it's an absolutely stunning and chilling experience. I can't imagine how you felt. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I was already emotional after the week that had been. How can you not been? How can you not be when you've covered something like a, a mass shooting like that? And I think everybody in the country is very emotional right now. And they're, they're looking for something hopeful, looking for something positive after a week of just terrible news with these two mass shootings. And so um, everybody at the gate was, was really emotional. And um, the passengers who were on that inbound plane stayed on board the plane as the repatriation service happened. And there wasn't a dry eye among the passengers disembarking from that plane who watched that flag-draped flag casket uh, unloaded through the windows. Wow. That is truly uh, one of those moments uh, that happen only once or twice in a lifetime. And uh, for you to be there and be able to share it with all of us was, was so memorable. Let me talk to you about El Paso now. 
what were you preparing yourself for, and what memories of your time in El Paso particularly accompanied you home? So, to be honest, this is now the uh, fifth mass shooting that I've uh, unfortunately had to cover in the U.S. I was in uh, Orlando and Parkland, Florida, and Las Vegas and Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, this is the fifth one. And unfortunately, there is sort of a familiar rhythm that develops to these things, the way they play out, the way people react, the way people search for answers, and the way people sort of come to terms with what they've been through. Um, but I think immediately we recognized that El Paso was something different from those previous events, that this was sort of um, this awful nexus of the current political climate in the U.S., the current rhetoric towards immigrants and immigration mixed in with the easy access to weapons and the, the plague of mass shootings here in the United States. So you so you you go there and you, and you've you've attended this is your fifth mass shooting so you're emotionally somewhat prepared what are the memories you come you come home with what what stands out particularly of that time in El Paso for you you know for me it's the fact that um, people there had already felt as though they were being targeted long before this shooting took place and they felt that way because uh, the president's rhetoric was really aimed in many ways at immigrants and immigration for the past three, four years now, uh, but in many ways that, that's deeply personal for residents of El Paso. It feels like an attack on them because um, if you're not up in your geography, El Paso is directly on the border with Mexico, and it's actually a twin city with the Mexican city of Juarez. They both bump right up against the border. There is a large border fence that cuts along the Rio Grande, which cuts in between the two cities, but they're still inextricably linked. I mean, people move back and forth between the two cities. They've got family and friends and jobs who go shopping on both sides. And so for a long time now, I think there's been this sense of unease in that community, this worry that the president's rhetoric could lead to something like this. And that's certainly the response we heard right away, this, this direct rush to blame the president for what happened. I was watching your Twitter account, as I mentioned earlier, but I've been watching it over the, over the time you've been in El Paso. And, and there is the political uh, gamesmanship taking place. They can't avoid it even at a time like that. And, and Trump sends out a tweet that uh, denigrates Biden. And then there's, uh, the, I saw also uh, when uh, Mr. Trump and, and uh, Melania Trump were holding the orphan baby his parents had, or the baby's parents had sacrificed their lives to keep their child alive. And there's Donald Trump with giving a thumbs up. It's, it's surreal. It's, it's, it's something that you just can't wrap your mind around. Yeah, and I think, you know, the awful context to that is that the White House had asked uh, the victims who were still in the two hospitals in El Paso, if any of them wished to meet with the president, and universally, they all said no. And so we got to this point of the president holding this orphan baby because... The baby was brought back to the hospital, having been released, to pose with the president. And, you know, I don't know what more to say about that. I mean, I think it just sort of speaks for itself. Yes. Uh, but that's the, the sort of awful situation, uh, the culmination of it. You spend most of your time in Washington reporting on the United States government, which is one of the most aggressively dysfunctional and publicly so organizations anywhere, I think. Given the GOP Democrats being at constant war with each other, do you think anything truly significant is going to come out of the El Paso and Dayton tragedies? Will something positive come out of this? No, I don't think it will. And I, I hate to be a pessimist in that regard, but I think um, you, you need to look back at the Sandy Hook shooting and realize that if uh, lawmakers in this country were unable or unwilling to act after the murder of elementary school ch children in their own school. Uh, what makes us think that they're going to act now? So uh, history will repeat itself. Unfortunately, I wish I wish I could leave with a more optimistic outlook or message. I, I am an optimist, 
uh, but not on this file. Uh, there is just no political desire to get it done. And much like um, the, the debate over health care in this country, I think Americans are sort of conditioned to think that this is normal, just that this is the way things are. Uh, and of course, as Canadians, we have the full, full privilege of understanding that this is not how things are in the rest of the world. This is a uniquely American thing. Yeah. Jackson, thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. Good talking to you. Jackson Prosco from uh, Washington, D.C., the Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. Brian Schmigelski and Cam McLeod, both are dead. We're waiting for the results of the autopsy. But the expectation is it was they, the RCMP, found close to the Nelson River or a kilometer or so from the Nelson River, Near Gillum, Manitoba, which is where Joe Scarpelli joins us from, global news reporter who has been and is still in Gillum filing great reports. Joe, thank you so much for all the information. We're, we're hungry for information on this case across the country, and you've kept us informed. Yeah, thanks for having me uh, uh, on the show, Roy. It, um, you know, things have really, uh, things died down for a little bit uh, since um, since the bodies were discovered, but then the investigation ramped back up uh, yesterday when police went back out to the area where the bodies were discovered and uh, they were looking for any evidence or uh, clues that uh, they may have missed the first time around. And uh, police found another uh, another item that uh, they believe uh, is possibly linked uh, to the to the two the two BC murder suspects. Although that has not been uh, confirmed, but yeah, another uh, item was found uh, close to where the bodies were located. They did do another uh, search of the spot where uh, the torched vehicle was found, but uh, they didn't find anything new over there. And uh, we're now we're just waiting for the results of the autopsy. We're told that. Uh, they've been done and bc rcmp will be getting the results next week and uh it'll be up to them uh, to decide how much information uh, if any uh, they share with us yeah uh, joe we don't know the rcmp aren't saying anything about what they found or what they're looking for no they um they haven't uh, told us what uh, what they found when we ask what they're looking for why they're going um they're they're saying they're, they're trying to this can help them find uh, or answer some of the many questions that are still out there. I asked them, like, how is finding something like an item going to give you a motive? Like, how, how is it, uh, like something that, that may have been left behind? How is that going to give you a motive? And I was told it's extremely difficult, but depending on what what is found, maybe there's a, a note. Maybe there's uh, maybe they were. Um, making some uh, videos or, or something like that. Um, of course, we're, we're never going to get to hear from the, the suspects uh, themselves, but um, police are just doing anything they can to you know, try and find out anything they can about these, about these two. I'm constantly asked what it is that led police to the location of the bodies. Well, it was um, last week police were doing a, um, a routine search um, from the air, and uh, they spotted um, an aluminum boat uh, along the Nelson River. It was, was washed up, damaged. So that's what uh, drew police to this uh, specific area. And, of course, they, uh, they dug a little deeper into that uh, location, and uh, they found some more items close to where this uh, aluminum boat was found. Uh, they brought in uh, an underwater search team to uh, 
I guess, go looking for bodies in the Nelson River. Right. Uh, they didn't find anything then. That search was uh, last weekend. But uh, since that search, uh, police really, it was really obvious they were focused on that area because in the days that followed that underwater search, they were restricting, like, you, they set up roadblocks, and you couldn't, you couldn't get by them. And that we haven't seen in this investigation. It was usually a lot of check stops but uh seeing the, the roadblocks go up that was that was something new so you could it was pretty obvious that police you know were really zeroing in on that on that location and um i know the day that the that the bodies were found uh, they spent several several hours in this location and uh the morning before the bodies were found we were told that police had done everything they can in that area and they were starting to they were going to start scaling back and they were going to start sending the officers home i know that morning that the bodies were found a flight um left full of uh um, rcmp officers and i think two or three flights uh, left that day because they were just getting they thought you know what we've done everything we can and then sure enough a couple hours after uh the first plane of officers left, uh, the bodies were discovered. Joe, what are the questions that you want answered? Is there something specifically that you would love to hear the RCMP address or you want the RCMP to address? Well, I have the same questions that everybody's asking me here at, uh, uh, in, in the community. Everyone's just talking about in the community. Everyone wants to know how did they get to where they, well, we first, we, first of all, everyone wants to know motive uh you know they're accused of uh three three killings and people want to know uh motive that's going to be extremely difficult but even how did they end up uh just uh, not too far from gila manitoba along a, a river in a very very difficult to reach spot and the cause of death uh that's that's another big one that i want to know and everybody in town uh uh wants would like to know too Mm-hmm. And that river, we should point out, and I've mentioned this several times, and we had a guest last weekend who pointed it out, and as you know, because you're there, that is not a small river. This is a serious piece of water. Oh, oh definitely. And uh, there's not a lot of access points to it. I know I, I tried to get as close as I could to uh, where the bodies were discovered, and uh, I got within maybe six kilometers. The body of water is, uh, it, 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 can get, uh, it can get pretty rough, but just to access the shoreline, you're looking at like a quite a drop. You're, you're almost up, like it's a when you're walking from the road into the one of the very few paths to the to the river. You're not at the water. You're like 30, 40, 50, maybe more feet above uh, above the water. Okay, so the autopsy is expected. It's expected they're done now, and we're we're waiting to hear from BC RCMP. On yeah. that. So, yeah, Manitoba RCMP telling me that uh, it's going to be, uh, it's out of their hands now, and this will be uh, BC RCMP uh, taking, uh, taking it over from here as it's their homicide investigation. Manitoba RCMP tell me they were just kind of uh, assisting the BC RCMP. Now that their job is done uh, in, the, in the province, they located them. Uh, BCRCMP will be uh, getting the results and taking everything over from here. And I imagine the sense of relief in Gillam is palpable. Oh, big time. Uh, the word spread like wildfire here was the, the day that they were caught, and then uh, the, in, the, in the past couple of days, everybody is just so relieved. Um, things are finally starting to get back to normal. Uh, there's not a lot of, you know, um, looking over your shoulders, uh, people 
were uh, telling me people who have never locked their homes before or their cars were doing that for the last couple of weeks. And even us, the, the media, you know, we're, they're, they were all very welcoming, but they're not used to cameras and reporters and people knocking on their doors and asking them questions. So they're even happy that uh, we are going to finally be uh, leaving them alone, although they were all very welcoming uh, while we were here. Well, Joe, thank you for the great reports from Gillam, Manitoba. Thanks for providing us with the information we've all been so hungry for. You've done a fantastic job of that and have a safe flight home. Thank you very much. All the best. Joe Scarpelli from Global News joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. There are so many questions that we want answers to. And we at this point don't know just how many answers we're going to receive. They'll be coming out, and it'll be over a period of time. But I think the interest in this particular event, in this particular story, and the tragedy of the three lost lives, and then the lost lives of the two accused, um, we'll be getting information. But how much? That we don't know yet. That we don't know. Gun violence, societal violence, as a public health issue. You know, as we were talking last weekend, initially about El Paso and then about Dayton, I started to think about interviews that I uh, have done, and I haven't talked to him for quite some time, but I've spoken with Dr. Gary Slutkin. And uh, Dr. Slutkin had told all of us on this program, and he's been telling the world, that societal violence is a public health issue. He's an epidemiologist, former head of the World Health Organization's Intervention Development Unit, and professor of epidemiology and interventional health at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health. Dr. Slutkin is the founder of the international NGO Cure Violence, which was launched in one of the most violent sections of Chicago, where you know they've had this horrific shooting numbers annually, and they saw shootings reduced 67% in the first year that Cure Violence was in that area. The Cure Violence program has been adopted internationally, including in Canada. And Dr. Gary Slutkin joins us, the founder of CureViolence.org. Dr. Slutkin, thank you very much for the time. Yes, very well, and I'm happy to be with you. Good, How good, are you? good. I'm good. Good to have you with us. I just want to read a couple of your tweets here. Uh, it's like we're in the early stages of this hate race political epidemic, uh, hashtag El Paso shooter, hashtag domestic, uh, domestic terrorism, hashtag El Paso. And then on the 3rd of August, you tweeted, America is in very bad shape. We are in an epidemic of ethnic, racial, and possibly political violence within a broader national violence epidemic. And and you use the word epidemic, and, and, and you've maintained, and, and you've proven the point that violence and gun violence really is a public health issue. So remind us, please, of why that is so. Well, uh, what an epidemic means is that its rates are much higher than they should be, but it specifically means that one event leads to another leads to another. And like cholera or Ebola, you end up having what we call outbreaks. And these can be small within a community, or they can be larger in a whole city or in a whole country. Are you able to hear me okay? I can hear you fine. There's a little bit of a background hum, but we're all right. So um, what we're seeing is with the mass shootings is more of them 
And not only are they becoming more frequent, but they're becoming more lethal. And so this is, if you were to look at this on a graph or a curve, you'd be seeing the increasing nature of it. And so that's what we really mean by epidemics. And what it means to epidemiologists and to public health people is that we have to put into place those things that prevent the spread. Okay, so, so, the, so the public health system becomes not just part of the solution, but as you've pointed out or as you've shown with Cure Violence, it actually is the solution or can be 100% of the solution because in one of the situations in Chicago, when Cure Violence was introduced, 100% of retributive gun violence was stopped. Right. And there are now also in, uh, on the East Coast of the U.S. and in Latin America, there's 13 communities that have gone to zero with this approach. And that what this means is, and you've stated it pretty much the case, is that we're treating it just like any other epidemic with health workers, outreach workers, violence interrupters as the main part of the solution. And it's not the way people ordinarily look or have looked at this, but this is what changes the situation. All right, we're not talking about people going, we're not talking about gang members or shooters going to hospitals. We're talking about uh, major changes within the community that is affected. So how does cure violence work? And you mentioned uh, violence interrupters. Who are the violence interrupters? How does it work? Well, um, there, there's a structure that's set up, and it, it starts either with the health department or with the mayor's office if you're working this in a city. It it then um, radiates to different communities where community organizations organize their part of it. In each of these community organizations, there is a, a number of, it could be five, it could be 20 workers, health workers, violence interrupters, outreach workers, and what we call hospital responders, new categories of workers. And what they do is they maintain the pulse of the community at all times as to who's upset who has a grievance, you know, who uh, owes somebody money, who's uh, upset about his girlfriend being uh, with somebody else. Whatever somebody else was shot, there's going to be a retaliation. So they have, uh, and the people who are hired have the access and trust of the people who might be doing the shooting. So they can't cool the person down. So if you have person A with a firearm who's intent on uh, gaining some vengeance of some kind for some reason on person B, the violence interrupters who are members of the community, I, I, could they be uh, former gang members themselves? And frequently. Frequently. Frequently they're people who come, they are always people from the community and they're always people who already know the situation locally. Frequently they were part of the, the problem itself. They no, they no longer are, and they're recruited, selected, trained, supervised to be able to cool their um, the the sh potential shooters down. They're trained to do this, and this is the way all epidemics are managed. You know, we have sex workers reaching sex workers. People used to use drugs, um, reaching out to people who are using drugs. You know, refugees reaching refugees, moms reaching moms. And so it just works the same way we work other epidemics. 
Okay, so the violence interrupter has credibility with person A, who's the potential shooter, and the and the violence interrupter, because of the credibility, is able to speak to that shooter and or potential shooter and get them to calm down and back off. Right. They they're they and they're trained into all the strategies how to to talk with them, how to cool them down, how to buy time, how to change their perspective, how to support them, so that they feel they're still okay, even if they don't do the shooting. There's a whole number of other things, you know, depending on the situation. There's about 10 or 12 different situations that require different strategies, and these people are specialists exactly in that. No two communities are entirely the same or face the same violence or threat of gun violence or even the general violence dynamics and challenges. So how does Cure Violence adapt to different communities and different dynamics? The chief of police in Toronto, where there have been 20 shootings this month already, with one person killed yesterday, spoke of an area of the city which is particularly at risk of street gang violence and gun violence. So how would Cure Violence successfully intercede in such situations? Uh, How do you apply that? And Maybe you can point to one example uh, globally, where cure violence has accomplished a great deal. Well, um, thanks for that question. I, I just want to start by saying, you know, public health interventions, we're always needing to adapt. Um, I mean, for example, AIDS was much different in New York City than it was in Uganda, and than it was in China, or is. And so, the we know how to adapt and modify based on what. The local circumstances are. Mm-hmm. I mean, in for our work in in violence as an epidemic process, we have a team, uh, a training and guiding team, and they um, go through a series of steps with each city. I mean, it, in New York, in Baltimore, in Honduras, in Jamaica, in South Africa, and also in Halifax. And basically, it starts by looking at maps and where it is, talking with the local people for the different types of what it is, if it's tribal or cartel or just gang or whatever the different types are. And then we kind of divide it out is how many groups or gangs are there, how many cliques are there. And then we have to figure out um, by working on the street with the local people as to who are the people or groups that need to be reached. And then the next set of steps have to do with finding the people who meet a certain number of criteria as to um, being able to reach those people. So they have the same background, they know them, um, they are can work um, and be uh, maintained and supported and um, are basically able to um, really want to have the violence stopped. And there's always people who have the access and want to be stopped, and some people even who are trying, but they don't have the full training. So then you put together teams of interrupters and outreach workers, and maybe there, like I said before, maybe there's five or 10, maybe there's 20 per community, depending on the size and, and the needs. And then they are they have a supervisor, and they um, exist within a community organization that we've helped um, and develop as a partner. We at Cure Violence, we don't um, develop like separate offices or programs um, that are uh, us moving in. We find the local 
um, community groups, local health departments, local mayor's offices, and we guide and train them to build the system for themselves. And it works very quickly. And I'm still, yeah. I still find this interesting, very interesting, given all the stories we hear and the concerns expressed by police and by uh, local, uh, provincial, and, and state and federal officials. Uh, you, you have great success in getting gang members or former gang members, to become engaged in cure violence and make a significant impact. It works quickly. You get uh, gang members involved, too, so they have credibility with people they're contacting. So why isn't it everywhere, and what's the cost? Well, I mean, just to say, yeah, we haven't talked about the results. They're on the website, um, cureviolence.org, and now there's a, a parallel website, Cure Violence Global. Um, we get very regularly and an average of 40 to 70 percent drops in shootings and killings. And the first parts of that are shown um, almost um, invariably in the first year, actually frequently in the first month or two. It's very, very fast. It's very common for teams to be hired and things to just shut down, the violence just to stop in the first month or two. So um, what are the, the real obstacle to this is um, the way that people see the problem now. And although this is changing, um, this is still new. It's kind of like, you know, a cell phone as compared to, you know, your taped cassette or your vinyl record or something, which, you know, still may be of great value. But, you know, more people are using the cell phone. And so this is what health and public health is the violence it's really just simply new well and i've so, been what, what i've been reading and i've seen reviews about the work that cure violence has done from communities that have employed it and people who have reviewed it like the former attorney general for the united states uh, right. tremendous response tremendous respect for what you're doing and great endorsements for cure violence it seems to me that given the fact that we have so so many uh, well-meaning people who are wringing their hands and looking for solutions, you you have something that demonstrably has proven to be successful and working. And I go back to the to the first year that you had the cure violence working in Chicago in one of the most violent neighborhoods, 67 percent drop in violent and violent gun crimes. Incredible. Well, I mean, it's not as if people aren't picking it up either since the last time we talked. I mean, we, we've spread now to 25 cities in the U.S., right. about 100 communities around the world, and um, about 15 um, pushing 20 uh, countries. I mean, we're in about a dozen countries in, working in Latin America, and it's being expanded in um, working with UNICEF and the Inter-American Development Bank being expanded in Mexico, being expanded in Honduras, in New York City. You know, it's in the city budget. It's in the state budget. It's in 22 communities. It's expanding now in Baltimore from four or five communities up to 10. We're starting new programs in North Carolina and in Florida and in St. Louis and in Milwaukee. So it is, you know, we're, we're um, the cities in Europe are calling. So there is a demand. Um, but, you know, if Toronto is having a problem or if other cities in Canada are having a problem, um, we should be talking with them. They should be talking with us. And we should get our, our teams talking to their teams 
and getting something started. I would agree. I mean, you're looking. They're, they're looking for a solution. Uh, there's a there's a demand, a public demand and an official demand, for a curtailment of the violence, the increasing violence and the increasing gun violence. Cure violence uh, is proving itself very effective, internationally and also proving itself effective in this country. I really appreciate the time, Dr. Slecken. It's always good talking to you. And I thought, uh, like I said the last weekend, I thought, what would work? And 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 I thought about you. I appreciate talking to you all the time. Uh, and. Uh, um, Big hello to all of your uh, wonderful uh, listeners, and uh, please look us up. And if you're having local problems, you know, give us a call through the website, and um, you know, we can uh, try to be helpful with your local authorities and with community groups there. All right. All I want to do is help. Thanks Thank so you much, Ray. Thank you, Dr. Slutkin. Good talking to you, Dr. Gary Slutkin. It is CureViolence.org. CureViolence.org. I know there are public officials. I know there are politicians. All right? I know there are police officials listening to this program right now. You want a solution. You want something to uh, interrupt the violence. Look up Cure Violence and uh, get in touch with Dr. Gary Slutkin. They've been extremely, extremely successful. Jody Wilson-Raybould. Former Attorney General for the Trudeau government, now independent candidate for the October 21st federal election in Vancouver, Granville. And uh, Canadians would love to hear Jody Wilson-Raybould share the rest of her truth. But, as she said there, and as we know, she's not been freed by the Trudeau government to share with the rest of us what the rest of her story is. And now the federal liberals have named their candidate to oppose the now independent Jody Wilson-Raybould in the riding of Vancouver Granville and their candidate will be Talib Nur Mohammed, a previous liberal candidate in a different Vancouver riding in a federal election where he lost. He also worked in the Privy Council office during the terms of Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin when they were prime ministers. So what's likely going to happen in Vancouver Granville? On the 21st of October, and what's going to happen leading up to Election Day, Mike Smith joins us, Vancouver Province columnist, news radio talk show host on uh, Global Radio in Vancouver, CKNW. I'll get my thoughts squared away. Mike, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great, Roy. Yeah, this is going to be one of the marquee matchups here in British Columbia in this fall election. Of course, Jody Wilson-Raybould, as you mentioned, running as an independent after she quit Justin Trudeau's cabinet and she was then expelled from the Liberal caucus, of course, the whistleblower on the SNC-Lavalin scandal, the Liberals would love nothing more than to knock her off her perch there and take this riding back. This has been a Liberal stronghold in the past. Independent candidates typically do poorly at election time. A very limited number of them have pulled it off. But you know what? I, I think Wilson-Raybould has a very strong shot here in this riding in Vancouver-Granville. She won there big time in the last election. She has very high name recognition in the riding. And I think she's still pretty popular. And I think her chances are enhanced against this liberal candidate whom you mentioned, tech executive Talib Nur Mohammed, who will be officially acclaimed by the party uh, next week. You know, he's got a pretty decent resume on paper in his business career, but I would say he has very low name recognition 
compared to Wilson Raybould. So I would have to say she's the favorite right now. I would bet, with a few exceptions, that Jody Wilson Raybould is the most well-known political candidate running on the 21st of October across the country. Well, you know what? She has, if you were to do a, a person on the street interview with random people in Vancouver Granville, I doubt a lot of people would recognize the name of this liberal candidate. You compare that to Jody Wilson-Raybould, everybody knows who she is. So I think that's a big advantage for her, and I think you've got to give her the edge there in, in that regard. If you just take a look at the last election, I mean, in 2015, she got 44% of the vote. She won that riding by nearly 10,000 votes over the NDP candidate who finished second. The Conservatives finished a very close third, so she won big last time. And I also think there's a there's a pretty good chance that a lot of NDP voters in that riding might switch over to her. The, the NDP are running a very kind of um, uh, inexperienced young candidate with, with zero name recognition there, too. So I think that could make her tougher to beat. And she's also been campaigning hard already. I mean, she's been out there for weeks. She's been knocking on doors. Uh, she's got over 200 volunteers, she says. Uh, you compare that to Noor Mohammed, the liberal candidate here, by comparison, not been doing much campaigning at all that I can see. And even yesterday, he was not available for interviews. So the, the Liberal Party wow. put out a press release saying, here's our guy, he's going to be our candidate. And reporters naturally asked, well, we'd like to talk to him. He's not available. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think that's a very good move. That's now, not I a good start. He, yeah, I mean, he'll, he'll start. probably have a news conference this week to officially roll out the campaign. But, you know, I think she's got a big head start on him. And she has a book coming out. <laughs> yeah, she's got a book coming out on September 20th, uh, right in the middle of the election campaign. Now, when you talk to the publisher of that book, uh, they say that the book will uh, not be a tell-all book on the SNC-Lavalin scandal. It's not a, an autobiography. The publisher says the book is about reconciliation with indigenous people. However, you got to figure the SNC-Lavalin affair uh, is going to make some sort of appearance in that book because a lot of commentators and Wilson-Raybould herself have talked about how her treatment by the prime minister in this scandal was a setback for reconciliation. So I think that's the entry point for the SNC-Lavalin scandal in this book, and that'll be dropped in the middle of the election campaign and just remind voters about the, the scandal, and that probably helps her. So, Mike, the question is going to be, how will liberal voters, how will the liberal voters, the liberal supporters in Vancouver-Granville vote? And I start to look at my this, and I ask myself from a distance, what are the hinge issues going to be, or what will the hinge issue be? Will it be SNC? Will it be Trudeau's treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould? Or will it be local matters? I think she qualifies on all three. She She's got. She has territory in all three of those. Yeah, I think she's going to do well in a lot of those points. She, I think she's she's also very tough. I mean, she's got a reputation as someone who was not afraid um, when she re she refused to knuckle under on the pressure on SNC Lavalin. Her testimony in front of the Federal Justice Committee was was rock solid. I think a lot of people respect that and remember that. And now now of course there will be some hardcore partisan liberals here who will look at her and think she's kind of like a traitor sure. to the party, and they will stick with the Liberal Party and 
not and not stay with her. But um, I'm thinking that the fact that the Liberals have got a candidate here who does not have the name recognition that she's got, and and he's run twice before for office. He ran uh, Nur Mohammed, the Liberal candidate here. He ran in North Vancouver in 2011. He, he he wasn't even close. He did not win. He tried to run for mayor of Vancouver just last year. He he uh, briefly announced he would seek the nomination for a Vision Vancouver, which is a major political party in Vancouver. And a week later, he announced he was canceling the nomination bid because he suffered a uh, a sudden cardiac event, as he put it, which has never been fully explained. Maybe he'll explain that next week. So, you know, this is a guy, I guess he's hoping to be third time lucky, but I think the Liberals are in tough here. It'll also be interesting, won't it, to see whether or not Justin Trudeau shows up in the riding. Hard not to when he'll be campaigning in Vancouver, but will he physically put himself in the riding, and could there be a situation where he'll have to deal with uh, impromptu appearances by Jody Wilson-Raypold's supporters? Yeah, he might be uh, forced to answer some questions yep. about the treatment of Jody Wilson-Raybould yep. on the campaign trail, answer some more questions about the SNC-Lavalin scandal. That could be uncomfortable for him, but I suspect maybe you'll see Trudeau uh, campaigning a lot here in British Columbia. This is important political turf in this election coming up in the fall, and maybe he shows up with a few bags of money, too, and makes some big, splashy spending announcements in the riding as well. I wouldn't be surprised to see that. The Liberals would love to hang on to this riding, but you know what? I, if I had to put my money on this, if I was a betting man, Roy, I'd, I think I'd put on Jody Wilson-Raybould pulling off the uh, uh, kind of a bit of an upset in political history in in British Columbia and win as an independent. We've done, you know, British Columbians have elected independents before. Remember Chuck Cadman? Yes. Yeah, everyone remembers Chuck Cadman. Yep. He got elected as an independent in B.C. I think Wilson-Raybould could do it, too. After what happened in March... Uh, and during those hearings, if I, I'm, I'm a political junkie, so for me it's probably far more front and center than it may be for other Canadians. But I just have this gut feeling that there's at least the potential here, Mike, for Jody Wilson-Raybould to be the Achilles heel for Justin Trudeau in British Columbia during the election campaign. Well, I, I think she's going to win this riding. And for Trudeau, I guess, in the aftermath of the scandal, I guess things are... The Liberals are happy that things have settled down. There have been no more resignations from the Liberal caucus. The story has kind of gone away from the headlines and the front pages. But I think it has the potential to be uh, front and center again in this riding, especially when Wilson-Raybould brings out a book in the middle of, of the right. election, and, and it'll be uh, her treatment by the prime minister will be a key, a key driver, I think, in this election. And I think maybe in other ridings, not so much, but certainly in Vancouver-Granville, I think it's going to come back to haunt Trudeau a bit. Mike, thank you so much for the time. I'll be very interested to read what you have to write about this particular uh, riding and the election there and, of course, throughout the province of British Columbia. Always great talking to you. Thank you. It's going to be a barn burner, Roy. Thanks Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Mike Smith, Vancouver Province columnist, talk show host at CKNW Radio. Manitobans will hear in a matter of days when they will vote for their new provincial government. A precursor to October the 21st and the federal go-around, perhaps? Conservative Premier Brian Pallister is one of the six conservative premiers who challenged Trudeau in that letter by premiers on bills C-48 and C-69. And here's a little bit of what Brian Pallister said to us not long ago. You know, it seems to me uh, a pretty stark example of the lack of uh, understanding of the diversity of the country that the federal government would propose to uh, bomb Manitoba with the same carbon tax when we're green that it would impose on Saskatchewan, which is based on a bed of oil and produces uh, more carbon outputs than we do by quite a bit. 
So, uh, combative words from the Premier of Manitoba for the Prime Minister of Canada, Richard Cloutier, joins us, co-host of News on 680 CJOB and senior reporter for Global News. He joins us from Winnipeg. Richard, why the early election in Manitoba? Yeah, it is. It will be September 10th. It's uh, a year and a bit early. And this is really because publicly the Premier has said Manitoba celebrates 150 years young next year and doesn't want to interfere with the celebrations. But the reality is that the economy, and we're seeing this worldwide between China and the United States, is expected to take a downturn next year. This is a government that has made some major moves within Winnipeg on health care. They still have some major moves to make in rural Manitoba on health care. Pallister has correctly said that he's accomplished the promises that he wants to accomplish and needs a new mandate. And uh, by all all the polling, uh, he should easily win uh, a very sleepy election campaign. He's calling it in the lazy, hazy days of summer. And this will essentially be a sprint after Labor Day and a vote on September 10th. He had a record majority last time. Uh, Everybody would reckon that he'll lose a few seats, but certainly will be returned to the Manitoba legislature on September 11th. So how much of this should be seen or has the potential to be a precursor for October the 21st federally? I know the Liberals don't have anywhere near the support in the province of Manitoba that they do in other provinces like Ontario, for example. But is is there a message that's going to be sent by Manitobans that can somehow be translated into some meaningful uh, message for October? Well, it's interesting because I think here the big issues are health care and the changes that they've made, crime and safety. Meth has hit uh, Winnipeg and Manitoba pretty hard as well. The environment is always there, but down the list, and I think when it comes to climate change and carbon tax, certainly it's on the minds of Manitobans, but is it a ballot box issue? What could change, though, and you know, as uh, the Premier has said, that oftentimes... He tends to forget about provincial politics and goes after the federal government and goes after uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister in particular. So if he's off his game because uh, all his people want him to be limited in what he says, to stay on script, but sometimes premiers and Pallister is uh, no shrinking violet, he will suddenly pivot and go after the liberals on certain issues and certainly on the carbon tax. And the fact is, is that he believes, and a lot of Manitobans believe, the Made in Manitoba solution will work and does not like the federal government interfering in what they consider to be a, a, an ex, not an exclusive, but primarily a provincial matter. So the carbon tax will resonate. It is on the meter. It's on the Richter scale for, for September 11. And, and, but I also think it's lumped with the fact that uh, Manitoba hydro rates have continued to climb at beyond inflation over the last several years. The cost of living, the cost of housing... Winnipeg housing is still very much affordable, but it has gone up. So within the basket of goods and the fact that the pump price is a whole lot larger, I think anybody that's promising to make life a little bit easier when it comes to the the day-to-day, the weekly, the monthly expenses, that will certainly help. And uh, the premier and and other politicians, if they want, can point to Ottawa saying that uh, your pocketbook is a lot lighter as a result. You know, I think that's a theme that's going to resonate right across the country. People are finding themselves short of money. 
we had a poll not long ago about a significant percentage of Canadians who are literally living paycheck to paycheck. If they miss a paycheck, they're in serious trouble. Yeah, and and I think that um, you know that goes to the fact that governments are taking a lot more of our money, or that at least is the perception. And, and certainly, when you look at it from you know one perspective, it's that there's so much more potential to give those dollars back to Canadians. And I think there's a real segment of the population from coast to coast to coast that says, "Let me spend my money." And certainly, that has resonated here in Manitoba. The previous government raised the provincial sales tax by a point, wanting to spend that money on infrastructure and roads. Uh, Premier Pallister ran saying that he would bring back that PST, reduce it by that one percentage point back to 7%. He delivered on that promise. And certainly that's putting more money back into the pockets of Manitobans. And they'd like that idea. I think that the progressive conservatives in Manitoba, the conservative strong suit across the country is on taxes. And uh, Manitoba needs to be more competitive, not only with other provinces, but looking south to the United States, uh, the Trump administration and uh, their pro-USA policies um, has been a burden on some Manitoba companies that rely on exports to the United States. So if you're a premier now, you're not looking at just tax competitiveness with other provinces, but you're also looking at the northern United States as well. How do the Greens, how do the Green Party fit into the overall mosaic, if you will, of this upcoming provincial election? Interesting that the, the Greens here uh, within Winnipeg are polling between 10 and 12 percent. They almost won one um, very uh, urban riding in Winnipeg last time, and they are poised to run uh, really well in that riding again. And when it comes to the splits, the progressive conservatives are hopeful that the Greens do well because they take votes away from, um, from the New Democrats, and uh, the Liberals showing well uh, also take votes away from the New Democrats. So if the splits are right, you could see uh, Brian Pallister and the Progressive Conservatives delivered with the same, if not even a larger majority. Well, there'd be a lot of uh, cheering in the Conservative camp, and certainly the Sheer campaign would make use of that heading toward the 21st of October. Um, No question about that. Richard, thank you so much for the time. You bet. Look forward to talking to you in the weeks to come. Yes, sir. Richard Cloutier from CJOB Radio. So September 11 is the uh, is the Manitoba election. The uh, writ will be dropped officially. Premier Pallister seems to be poised to return to power. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.